This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. So the second half of the evening, as I mentioned, is also uh, going, going to be wonderful. Dr. Adam Nieder will uh, present his inaugural lecture as Bruner Welsh Chair in Theology. And to introduce Dr. Nieder, I'd like to bring forward Dr. Carol Simon. Dr. Simon serves as Provost and Executive Vice President at Whitworth. She's now completing her third year at Whitworth, and she'll introduce Dr. Simon, or Dr. Nieder. Thank you. So I thought Beck was going to say that I'm completing my sixth week on the scooter, and I graduate tomorrow afternoon. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you so much for being here. I want to give you a little bit of context since this is the inaugural uh, lecture um, for Dr. Nieder as the Bruner Welch Chair. Uh, the Bruner Welch Chair was envisioned in the late 1990s as a means to honor the legacy and work of Whitworth's theology professor, F. Dale Bruner, who retired from the university in 1997. In 2006, uh, distinguished lay leader and benefactor William J. Welch announced a pledge to fulfill the dream of this endowed chair for Whitworth. The faculty member who holds the chair is to be one who demonstrates a vibrant commitment to Christ, teaching excellence, scholarly productivity, willingness to mentor students and faculty, and a willingness to contribute to the general life of the university. Dr. James Edwards served ably in this role as the first Bruner Welch Chair from 2010 to 2015 when he retired from the university, but certainly not from his connections with the Whitworth community. At last fall's convocation, Dr. Adam Nieder was officially installed as the second occupant of the Bruner Welch Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies. Uh, Dr. Nieder received his MD and his PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. He's a systematic theologian who specializes in the theology of Karl Barth. In addition to a number of articles and reviews, he's the author of Participation in Christ, an entry into Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics. He's currently working on a book about the art of teaching theology, and I think we'll get a glimpse of what's going on in that project tonight. Professor Nieder arrived at Whitworth in 2004 and has taught a wide range of courses, including Christian theology, theology in film, and a seminar on Kierkegaard, Bart, and Barth, um, um, Bonhoeffer, excuse me. And in 2007, he received the Dean's Junior Faculty Award, and since then has been voted most influential professor at Whitworth by three senior classes. Adam Nieder also enjoys a national reputation as an important theological voice. He's a sought-after guest lecturer in academic settings. Uh, he's also one of a select group of theologians and other shapers of culture who are meeting regularly as part of a national initiative funded by the Lilly Foundation and headed by James Davidson Hunter, director of the Center for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. Since beginning um, his uh, 
uh, role as Bruner Welch Chair, Adam Nieder has contributed to intellectual community within the theology department by convening a research seminar in which faculty members discuss their developing projects with students and colleagues. Please join me in welcoming Professor Adam Nieder to give his inaugural lecture as Bruner Welch Chair entitled, On the Art of Teaching Christian Theology. Thank you, Carol, for that introduction. Um, and congratulations to Joe. Uh, he is such a gifted pastor, and I can tell you he's also a very good student because he was in my class. Um, some of you are here tonight because you love Joe, and part of the reason that you love him is because of what he's taught you about being a Christian. Christianity is not the kind of thing that you can do on your own. It's too hard and it's too confusing. We need other people to show us how to do it. So when you find an especially good guide, you find yourself not even intending to, but just being thankful for your teachers. For me, it was a fellow named Reg McClelland. None of you would have heard of him. He spent his whole career teaching at a little college on Lookout Mountain in Georgia, Covenant College. I sat in his classroom as a college sophomore, and he turned my lights on, and he changed the whole course of my life. I remember thinking uh, when I was sitting in one of Reg's classes, if I can do for just two or three students over the course of my whole career what Reg did for me, then I would take that. That would be a good career. It's, it's actually a somewhat fascinating question, and I've never heard anyone raise it before. And the question is, why do we love our best theology teachers so much? Why is that? Why are we so thankful for them? Why am I so, I mean, it is 2016. It was 1992 when I took Reg's class. I'm talking about him here in Spokane, Washington. Why is he so important to me? Why is Joe so important to many of you? Or if not personally, why is St. Augustine such an important teacher to you? Or C.S. Lewis? Why do we have such loyalty and affection for our teachers? I've been thinking about this, and I think it's at least partially, obviously not wholly, but at least partially because we've had to suffer under too many bad theology teachers. <laughs> People whose sermons and lectures confuse us more than they enlighten us. I hope you do not know what I am talking about. It would be great if you've never experienced this, but my guess is that you have. I bet you know what it feels like to care really deeply about being a Christian, to know that you're not very good at it, and to long for someone to take you by the hand and show you a better way. You understand what it feels like to be almost desperate for insight into the Christian life. So you go searching for it in a book or in a sermon or in a lecture. Your teachers start to teach and nothing happens. Or even worse than nothing, you feel more confused and depressed 
after they teach than you did before they started teaching. When I arrived at Whitworth, I knew I was not any good at teaching Christian theology. I had never done it before. And uh, I knew, having never done it before, I wasn't going to be any good at it. So I started to look for books that could help me learn to teach Christian theology. Only I couldn't find them. And then eventually, what I realized is that they don't exist. Now, I want you to think about how strange that is. When so much theological education happens in classrooms, why haven't Christian theologians spent more time thinking seriously and writing persuasively about what's happening there? It seems like we should have lots of great books about teaching Christian theology. We have plenty of good ones about teaching, and we also have uh, a number of good ones about theological education in general. But we don't have any good books written by contemporary theologians about teaching Christian theology. So uh, I decided eventually that if nobody else was going to write the book, then I was going to try to write it. And that's how I'm spending my time now. Uh, it's important for me to say that I'm not writing the book because I think I'm all that great at teaching Christian theology. Anyone who claims to have mastered the art of teaching Christian theology is a fool. Nobody possesses enough wisdom or imagination. Only the self-deceived arrive at the end of a semester and think to themselves, yep, that went about as well as it could possibly have gone. <laughs> All of us teach students and persuade them to believe things that are not true. At some point, and possibly more often than not, we lead people not toward God, but away from God. And I'm not writing this book because I think I'm an exception to that rule. Whatever authority or credibility I possess is just the result of trying to think really hard about what's going on when we try to teach Christian theology, to think really hard about why it's so difficult to do well and why I'm not as good at it as I need to be. Now, I, I don't want you to think that this is me up here being falsely humble. Um, I've been teaching at Whitworth for 12 years now. I think most of my students think I'm a pretty good teacher. I know that because they tell me that and because they write sweet things in the course evaluations. But with every year that passes, I become more acutely aware of my own weaknesses as a teacher, more in touch with the ways not that I am serving students, but the ways that I'm actually failing students, which sounds completely gloomy. But the thing is, it's actually true. And so the interesting, and this really is an interesting question, the interesting question is, okay, well, now what? Theology teachers have been given an impossible task. Our goal is for students to know God. But knowledge of God, in the deepest sense of the word knowledge, is not something that teachers can give their students. Knowledge of God is a divine gift. It's something that God alone can give. 
And so the question becomes, well, where does that leave us as teachers? If we are intrinsically incapable of accomplishing our most basic goal, then shouldn't that fact shape everything that we do in the classrooms? And if so, how should it affect what we do? So uh, those are the kinds of things that I spend my time thinking about. And tonight, I want to just share a few thoughts with you, three of them, actually. Um, but before I uh, move into these three thoughts, we have to talk about something um, which is actually pretty important. Because unless we agree on this point, there's very little reason for you to continue listening to what I'm going to say. The whole point of teaching theology is for students to know God. That's why we do it. But there are a lot of Christian people who talk as if it's not possible to know God. They're the ones uh, who, very well-meaningly, always like to tell you not to put God in a box. I don't know why it's a box always, but it's always a box. I'm waiting for someone to use a different metaphor. You know, like, don't put him in your, uh, I don't know, your footlocker or something. <laughs> At any rate, um, it's a simple misconception. And the, the misconception is that divine mystery leads you or ought to lead you to being an agnostic when it comes to God. Um, but that's actually not the case. Uh, for example, read uh, Colossians 2, especially verses 2 and 3. And if you don't agree with me now, after reading those verses, you might. I think what people are trying to do when they tell you that you can't know God is that they're trying to be humble and they're trying to honor God. These are good people. Um, maybe you think that way about God. But if you do, I want you to pause for a second and consider something. If God is unknowable, does that make him greater or less great? If God is unknowable, does that mean that he's greater or does it mean that he's less great? it sure seems like it makes him less great. Because if God is unknowable, then he can't reveal himself to us. He couldn't do that even if he wanted to, because he would be the kind of God who can't be known. And yet we do know that God is knowable, because Jesus is himself the revelation of God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, he says. This is eternal life. This is in his uh, prayer to his father in John 14. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But if God is unknowable, then Jesus is wrong. If God is unknowable, Jesus is not the full and definitive revelation of God. And here's the other thing. It's actually not humble of us to say that God can't be known. It seems like it is, but it's actually not. Because if God has, in fact, made himself known to us in Christ, then who are we to say that God can't be known? 
Of course, there is a grain of truth in the idea, actually two grains of truth. Uh, We only know God because God wants us to know him. If he hadn't revealed himself to us, we wouldn't know him. And it's also true that we will never fully comprehend God. We'll never know God as well as God knows himself. But here's the thing that I hope to persuade you of. If God has made himself known in Christ, then God can be known. If the reality is that God has made himself known to us, then that establishes once and for all the possibility that God can be known. And if we say otherwise, we are not being pious, and in fact, we're not being Christian at all, because this is not merely a matter of abstract academic theology. This is a matter that goes to the very heart of the Christian faith. You cannot place your faith in a question mark. You have to know the one whom you entrust your life to. Sure, there was once a time when we didn't know God. There used to be a blank space, but then God wrote his name. That was for my daughter, Mary. Did any of you catch that? That was a Taylor Swift joke. (laughs) Listen to Taylor Swift, and then an hour or two from now, you'll understand that joke that I just told you. Um, Point number one. This is the first of these three points. And we're already halfway through the talk, so don't worry. It's not going to last that long. Um, Number one, when students know God, when that happens for them, they become the people that they really are. Every teacher operates with an implicit or an explicit anthropology. In other words, your teaching is guided by who you think your students are. And it's no different with teaching theology. To teach people theology, you have to know who they are. But the anthropology that Christian theologians work with, or at least the one we ought to work with, is an anthropology that's grounded in Christology. In other words, we only know who people are when we know who Jesus is. That's what's distinctive about a Christian way of thinking about human beings. If you want to understand human nature, you have to look to Jesus. The radiant truth at the center of the gospel and the essential fact of human nature is that Jesus Christ has reconciled all things to God. Colossians 1, 19-20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Nothing that you can say about anyone is truer than that. We are who we are because Jesus Christ is who he is. Which means that when Jesus Christ calls us to himself, he calls us to exist as the people we really are. To live with the grain of our identity in him, 
rather than against it. That, in the broadest sense, is what's going on in the theological classroom when teaching goes well. Students are waking up to the truth and embracing the truth in faith and obedience. Kierkegaard put this really well. He said, to know the truth, to really know it, is not just to become intellectually acquainted with the truth. Instead, to know the truth is to, quote, this is Kierkegaardian language, so it takes a second for it to sink in. To know the truth is to redouble the truth in existence. To know the truth is to redouble the truth in existence. In other words, to know the truth, to really know it, is to mirror the truth with your life in your own small way to serve as a mirror of the truth. The truth is a trap, Kierkegaard wrote. You can't get the truth without the truth getting you. Um, he, of course, learned this from Jesus, who said in John 8, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, knowledge and obedience are inseparably related to one another. You can't have one without the other, at least when it comes to knowing God. And what that means then is that knowing God is not merely the acquisition of detached intellectual information. And it's also not just a process of socialization into academic theology or even the church. Intellection and socialization are elements of a unified event of existential transformation that occurs as the whole of our lives, not just our minds. Everything about us, the whole of our lives, are brought into closer conformity to Jesus Christ. Another way of putting this is just to say that to know God is to know Christ, and to know Christ is to submit to his lordship. And when that happens, when students hear and respond to the word of God, what I'm suggesting is just that when those uh, events take place in our classrooms, our students are becoming, in those moments, and then hopefully afterwards, the people that they really are in Jesus Christ. Their existence, who they are in themselves, matches their essence, who they are in Christ. So that's the first point. Now the second point. The Holy Spirit is the primary teacher in our classrooms. I've just been arguing that knowledge of God is uh, an event of existential transformation, but I also said that teachers cannot engineer that transformation in their students. We are intrinsically incapable of producing knowledge of God in our students. That, I think, is a fact that every one who tries to teach Christian theology 
doesn't need to just agree with intellectually, but needs to take time to allow it to sink into the very roots of who they are, and then to allow that to inform what happens in their classrooms. We are not the primary teachers in our classrooms. The Holy Spirit is. It is right for us to be confident that our students will come to know God in our classes. But that confidence is not grounded in our own competence or expertise or even in our powers of persuasion. That confidence that students will in our classes come to know God is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. What do I mean by that? I'm not saying that just because this is Easter time. I'm saying that because I mean it. The Christian faith turns on the belief that Jesus Christ is not dead and mute, but is alive and eloquent, making himself known to our students in our classrooms in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that is true, if I'm right about that, if knowledge of God is a divine gift, there are many, many implications of that, but I want to mention just one. And it's that prayer is the sine qua non of teaching Christian theology. It is the absolutely indispensable element of teaching theology. And the logic is as simple as it is penetrating. If we depend on the Spirit to move in our classes, then we have to ask the Spirit to move. He does not have to do that. So we ask Him to do that. It's as simple as that. There is no substitute for prayer. Roger Morlang spends countless hours praying for his students. And Roger Morlang's classes are unusually fruitful. Those two facts are not coincidentally related to one another. Nothing theology teachers do is more important than prayer. And now the last point. When the Spirit acts, our classes will not be safe spaces filled with bored spectators. Academia is currently obsessed with creating safe spaces for students. But in, in case you haven't heard, or perhaps in case you have not read uh, the New Testament, safety is not a Christian virtue. And the best classrooms are never comfortable. If students only feel affirmed in our theology classes, if what we say never threatens or disturbs them, then as theology teachers, we are misleading them about God, and we're misleading them about what it means to exist in relationship with God. If it's true, as Karl Barth once said, and you knew I was going to quote him, if it's true, as Karl Barth once said, that theology is a, quote, violent disturbance, and thus one does not withdraw more or less unscathed from the shock that makes one a theologian, unquote, then at least something of that atmosphere ought to be reflected in our classrooms. 
the last thing theology teachers ought to do is protect students from the trauma of an encounter with the Word of God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, the father says. But listening, serious and intense listening, is painful. It's one of the hardest things that human beings can do. Yes, the word of God breathes life into us. It is our daily bread. But the word of God also illuminates and exposes us. And our instinct when that happens is to pull away, to recoil away from what God is saying to us and to slink back into the shadows. And so in an utterly non-coercive way, in a way that maximally respects their freedom, affords them space to make up their own minds, and rejects every kind of manipulation and indoctrination. Theology teachers have to make it clear to students that Jesus cannot be known from a safe distance. He can only be known in a face-to-face -face confrontation that calls their whole lives into question. Careful description, incisive criticism, and broad cataloging of options certainly have an important role to play in our teaching. But to leave it at that is to teach against the grain of the subject matter. It's to misrepresent the material by confusing a part for the whole. To give students the impression that Christianity is exclusively a matter of the intellect is to mislead them about what Christianity is. Any theology that would not even consider the necessity to respond to God personally, Bart wrote, could only be false theology. Now, you were waiting for it, so now is the time where I will pause and make myself perfectly clear. I am not saying that theology teachers ought to threaten students. Of course that's not what we should do. The whole point of our job is to love and serve students. Students exist for teachers. Teachers do not exist to be the playthings. No. <laughs> that was not a Freudian slip, I promise. <laughs> Teachers exist for students, not vice versa. I was channeling my inner George Bush there for a second. <laughs> if you want to know what teaching theology is, this is the best thing, uh, way to think of it. It's, to, it's a form of love and service to students. So obviously you're not threatening them. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus does threaten them. And he threatens them precisely because he loves them. Because he wants them to live in union and communion with him. But no one is united to Jesus Christ without being torn away from patterns of life that contradict him. No one. And that tearing away is painful. As painful as it was for Gollum to be separated from his precious ring. 
When I say that theology classes ought to threaten students, that's what I mean. Again, Kierkegaard has an analogy that maps pretty closely with what I'm trying to say. We all know what it is to play warfare in mock battle, what it means to imitate everything just as it is in war. The troops are drawn up, they march into the field, seriousness is evident in every eye, but also courage and enthusiasm. The orderlies rush back and forth intrepidly, the commander's voice is heard, the signals, the battle cry, the volley of musketry, the thunder of cannon, everything exactly as it is in war, except for just one thing, the danger. So too is it with playing at Christianity. Absolutely everything is, is included in as deceptive a form as possible, and only one thing is lacking, the danger, unquote. Teaching Christian doctrine is important. It's a big part of what theology teachers do. But God is not a doctrine. And the most important theological question is not one that teachers ask on the final exam. It's the question that Jesus asks all of us and which each of us has to answer for ourselves. Yeah, that's what they think. But who do you say that I am? But if students leave our classes thinking that they've responded to that question when all they've done is learn some theology, well, as Kierkegaard says, then we're just playing at Christianity. And again, I want to be very, very clear about this. This has nothing remotely to do with being coercive. Teachers, I've been trying to argue, cannot engineer this encounter that occurs between Jesus Christ and students. And we shouldn't try to. We can't measure it, and we definitely shouldn't try to test for it. An intelligent atheist ought to be able to ace our theology classes. In fact, some of the very best students that I've had, the very best, do not believe in God. It frees them to ask extremely interesting questions. Theology is an academic discipline like anything else. The point is that God does not call us to create faith in our students. That would be too heavy a burden. He calls us instead to do something far more modest than that. He calls us to be his witnesses, to point away from ourselves to Jesus Christ, and then to disappear into the background, to be humble enough to allow Jesus Christ to become greater and us to become less. I'll end with an anecdote about this. This is Andres Iniesta. He is a Spanish soccer player. He grew up uh, training in Barcelona's youth system and is still currently a Barcelona player. Barcelona happens right now to be the best team in the world. Iniesta is as good 
at what he does as almost anyone else in any field of endeavor, and that is not an exaggeration. He's tiny, five feet seven, 140 pounds. I mean, you, you can see his legs. Uh, they're so skinny that every time he gets tackled, you kind of wince because you're worried that these lumbering defenders are going to break his legs. But after the Champions League final in 2009, which is uh, the highest level of soccer, in fact, even higher than the World Cup, in case uh, you were wondering, these are the very best players in the world. After the Champions League final in 2009, when Barcelona beat uh, my beloved Manchester United, it was hard for me to say that to you just now, in case you were wondering. After that final, Wayne Rooney said that Iniesta was the best player in the world. Better even than Lionel Messi, who many people think is the best player in soccer history. The point is that Iniesta is really, really good at soccer. And because of that, he has every reason to be a preening megalomaniac a narcissist like Cristiano Ronaldo. But he's not. In fact, he's exactly the opposite. Once he was in a Barcelona restaurant, and a waitress who thought that he was a busboy ordered him to clear a table full of dirty dishes. And he did, without missing a beat. He just did it. Anyway, in 2010, Spain and Holland met in the World Cup final and played to a scoreless draw. They went into extra time, and in the 116th minute of extra time, Andres Iniesta drifted wide, received a pass, and with a lunging Dutch defender closing in on him, he smashed the ball past the goalkeeper and into the net. And with that one shot, he won Spain its first World Cup and sent an entire nation into collective ecstasy. No one in sports history has ever been higher than Iniesta was at that moment. No one. It's not an exaggeration to say that. He had reached the summit of individual sporting achievement. And then with more than a billion people watching him and with a significant percentage of those people worshiping him, he ripped off his jersey in celebration and revealed this undershirt that he's wearing. It says, Danny Arque, siempre con nosotros. Danny Arque, always with us. It's a tribute to a friend and former teammate who died the year before of a sudden heart attack. I want you to pause for a second and think about what you're looking at. A man prepares his entire life for this moment. And when it finally arrives, he manages to hold his nerve and seize it. And with the eyes of 15% of the world's population fixed on him, what does he do next? He directs all of the glory and attention away from himself to someone else. He becomes less so that someone else can become greater. He becomes invisible so that someone else can become visible. It's hard to imagine 
a more vivid parable of self-emptying Christian existence than that. In this one gesture, Andres Iniesta showed us what it looks like for someone to disappear in front of a billion people. And in the slightly less stratospheric contexts of our theology classrooms, that's what theology teachers are trying to do also. That's all I've got. Thank you for listening. <laughs>